This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. He hails all the way from Germany. It is Boris Lakshin. He's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Spriker Systems. They say they are going beyond. Boris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Albert, for having me. Hey, listen, we took a look. We always do our research on all the companies and all of our guests before they join the show. And I got to ask, because I'm not quite sure. So we understand that Spriker is headless modular B2B commerce, but those are industry words. You know, we hear a lot of different companies will say they do headless. In your words, please define what is Spriker and what do you guys do? Good first question. Um, so let me maybe start with just a you know simple definition. So we are an enterprise digital covers platform, and uh, the platform is aimed uh, to solve what we call sophisticated transactional business models. Now you know to understand what it means, uh, I think we can kind of break break down this first sentence. Sophistication or sophisticated commerce, uh, you know, typically you would find rather B2B-ish use cases uh, or enterprise marketplaces use cases or IoT use cases in this sophisticated bucket, right? And the main difference is, is if you compare it to more commodity type of e-commerce, which is very B2C retail oriented, right? Then our ICP, our ideal customer profile, our you know topics, verticals, industries that we like a lot are rather you know, on the B2B side of things. We like automotive a lot. We like manufacturing in general, right? We like uh, uh, pharma, medtech, life science, uh, verticals, verticals, which would, you know, rather sit in the B2B bucket. And they would all share the same thing. They would have sophisticated or complex use cases to be solved uh, with, you know, uh, tons of growth potential in the digital world. Okay. So I'm going to kind of disclose a little bit of my background and hopefully we can close the gap in this understanding. So a long time ago, as an Oracle consultant, I actually worked on two different projects. One was uh, Cummins Power Zone, which is Cummins generators and diesel engines for those of you out there. So for, yes, you can buy it as a consumer, but there was a B2B portal. And I was part of this. The B2B portal was insanely, I would say complicated, right? Because companies were buying, you know, like this portal was designed for like, it wasn't designed for, you know, Big Al sitting in North Carolina to buy one generator. It was for like Dodge to buy a thousand units or whatever for their next wave of trucks, or it was for a custom build and they had to order custom parts and they had all these different, let's say rate adjustments based on how many parts you ordered, how much, how long the lead times were. Is this where Spriker plays like in that type of in transactional interface? Because this was designed for like the distributors as well as big time buyers to like customize their order to fit exactly what they needed. Yeah, I think it's a good it's a it's a good analogy, and it's kind of the grandfather maybe of the Spriker use case, so to say, right? I think B two B commerce as such has evolved significantly, you know, since okay. since you have been on the uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> on the consulting side, right? From uh, you know, if you think back like fifteen years or so, majority of the B two B use cases were very much about hey, let's build a self service portal so that our big accounts can you know restock replenish themselves and our small and mid sized accounts. Uh, sorry, so that the big accounts that we that we can keep on uh, serving them with our account executives, and the small and mid-sized accounts can restock, replenish, reorder themselves. This was kind of the the primary use case in the early B two B commerce days. Nowadays, because of digital transformation, 
which means two things. Uh, we have companies uh, who are transitioning billions of dollars from their P&Ls from non-digital enabled channels to digital enabled channels. I give you one example. Like companies like Siemens Helsingers, right? They, they are not mm-hmm. selling CT scanners and X-rays anymore to hospitals like they did before, right? So they, they try to do this via digital channels. They try to go into a pay-per-use model. Uh, they try to build IoT models where, you know, the device is reordering, you know, certain materials, seeking software updates, where they run tons of data underneath to understand the, you know, uh, usage profile, where they can go into a pay-per-use model. So basically an OPEX instead of CAPEX model. These kind of things would be rather the transition, right, of revenues. And then there is also tons of greenfield business models, which are currently being built by these large organizations. Business models, new digital products and services, which did not exist before at all, right? So they might still keep the old model, but, you know, decide to build an enterprise marketplace, for example, where they would bring together, you know, other sellers or, you know, partners of them so that the experience for the customer is made easier. Or again, build IoT-related use cases where, you know, the devices scheduling maintenance appointments automatically, right? Or apps where, you know, customers can bypass, you know, dealers, for example, right? Uh, these would be new digital products and services. Um, so, so the variety of B2B use cases is, has increased. Uh, the buyer has changed from having been in your old Oracle days, primarily the CIO, to nowadays it's the business. Mm-hmm. So it's the VP digital, it's the VP commerce, it's the people tasked with sales marketing transformation who are buying this, these products. And they're not buying them for cost reduction reasons. Like in the old days, they're buying them to grow revenue. They're buying them to gain market share. They're buying them to, you know, tap into new markets, which they did not, you know, had before. So it's a rather upside oriented thing. And they want to do it in a modern way, in the most agile way possible. They want to do it fast. They want to do it with rapid time to value. Nobody wants these 24 months, 36 months implementation projects anymore. (laughs) They want to do it lean and fully composable so that they can launch MVPs. They can invest a couple of hundred thousand dollars max for one use case prove it and then roll out the next one instead of going for these seven digit investments before they get any result out the door. So the methodology has changed. The buyer has changed. The use case has evolved. And this is why we are also referring this now back to my initial statement. It's not B2B commerce. We call it sophisticated commerce because there is more than just B2B use cases that these companies, and they would all share the same thing, multi-trillion dollar industries and verticals with low digital penetration, digital commerce penetration. And by low, I mean often as low as below 5%, but for sure below 10%. Yeah. While the commodity commerce is the B2C retail segment, selling fashion online, selling you know brands, selling electronics, books online, which is very commoditized uh, in a completely different market from where we play. So the way you described it, and I'm thinking about these, like you, you mentioned before, these are for businesses that maybe have less than 5% market share or 5% of their businesses online retail at, at this moment. And they're ta- so they're typically not built for that. And this idea of composable modularized commerce means, hey, I already got a tech stack, Boris. Don't mess with what I got. I want to integrate and add, like you said, new revenue lines. And I'm going to try to try this out. We looked you up on LinkedIn. We see that you're a co-founder of multiple different businesses. Some of them have been exited to like retailers. Mm-hmm. Is that how you learned that this problem and opportunity existed? Like, how did you discover this? Because it's one of the things that we we talk about with a lot of different co-founders and stuff is like on the consumer app side, there's always a lot of engineers exposed to the problem. So for example, if we're talking about social platforms or dating, like just reality is like most of us are exposed to that, right? right. But B2B problems, 
you have to be inside the problem to know it even exists. Then you have to be super intelligent to be like, I can solve this problem. I'm observing. How did you observe the problem? Let's start there. You, What were you doing where you said, hey, something is needed here? Were people already asking for it? Or did you kind of hypothesize and see that this was an opportunity? Yeah, I would say both things. So Spryker is my third commerce technology business. I, as, as you correctly said, I, I uh, built, launched, and you know uh, had some success with two businesses before. The first one, we, we built a platform that, you know, from today's point of view, we would call it a SaaS shopping cart. You know, I didn't, it wasn't called uh, like this like this back then. And we sold it to one of our largest clients, which was, who was a large electronic retail chain. The second business was an interesting one because we took an open source commerce product, which was very, very famous back then. We took AWS, which was in its infancy. Basically, it was just S3 and EC2 services. So we took the infrastructure as a service layer, we took the application, and we built the platform layer in between ourselves so that we had a full stack SaaS product without owning two out of three stacks, <laughs> which was a very interesting uh, learning. And this business was acquired by a Nasdaq listed uh, company. And when I joined them, uh, you know, I, I, together with two other guys, we were leading the, we were leading the, um, the digital commerce portfolio, which back then had all the major enterprise platforms such as uh, ATG, then you know acquired by Oracle, uh, Hybris uh, pre SAP acquisition, Precept SAP, yeah, <laughs> uh, Magento pre Adobe acquisition, um, and Demandware pre uh, Salesforce acquisition. Yep. So we were sitting on all these major mid market to enterprise platforms, and as part of a larger group with you know people deployed globally. Uh, with my previous two companies, I was primarily selling to B2C retail companies and, and, and serving B2C retail customers. Now, as part of this larger group and through you know, good account management companies of that size typically do, you know, where they're already in an account and they open up for another product line, we were pulled in by, uh, we were increasingly pulled in by new verticals and by new use cases that were not on the B2C retail side, by insurances, by banks, publishers, Clubs like sport clubs, manufacturing companies, wholesale distribution, etc. Right, and this was the point when I started to see and notice a couple of things. First, it was very clear that all the major enterprise and mid-market commerce platforms began were primarily designed to serve a B two C use case. None of them was designed for a pure B two B only world, uh, and the ones who were rather B two B ish, right. They were very narrow, you know, in terms of like B2B only, no marketplace, no subscriptions, no this, no that, no IoT. So it was very, very narrow. So this was the first observation. Second one was the one that I already shared about methodology, you know, and, and the, the, the buyer started to change. All of a sudden, we were talking to business people. We were talking to marketeers, to salespeople who didn't issue an RFP to save 3% cost per year to get their <laughs> bonus paid right? yeah. on, on cost savings, right? Their business KPI was different. They were sitting, they were calling us from 40, 50, $20 billion companies, very often market leaders in their niche or in their space. You know, and, and the conversation went very often like this. Hey, we are a market leader for whatever, tool production for you know certain tools or for silicon isolations for Windows or for you know, uh, corporate uh, business printing machines. We are a 45 billion company. We were tasked by our shareholders, by our family office, by our board. We need to go through digital transformation. We are playing catch up because we have not invested and we have not executed in digital transformation five years ago where we should have started. Now we are behind. There are already competitors, digital native competitors eating our lunch, eating into our business model. 
So we want to transition five to ten billion out of our forty-five within the next three to five years. <laughs> so very ambitious, very ambitious asks, very time critical asks, right? And very serious investments that were behind it in terms of we are willing to build our own digital native organization. We want to hire three hundred people, five hundred people globally. We want to hire engineers. We want to hire data scientists. So not this outsource model deployed, you know, somewhere to NSI, but serious ambitions. Uh, by business people, and all of them, basically, as you said, like from a B2C world, we all know this, nobody is launching apps, you know, and building them for three years. You, you always go for an MVP, you try to get things live in the first 100 days, you try to validate, you try to learn, you try to gather data, right? Yeah. And this this kind of approach swapped over to the corporate and the enterprise world. So these people came to us and say, yeah, we want to do try out this use case, but it's just a hypothesis. We don't know whether this use case will be the one we, we need to double down on or another one. So I want to launch it in six weeks and try it out. And this was, you know, these three things, new buyer, new methodology. And then, of course, the technological changes like further cloudification, you know, uh, emergence of um, uh, headless of, you know, um, it wasn't called composability back then, but it was clear that it's going towards a best of breed world and not a monolithic. I buy everything from one, one vendor anymore. So the technological change when I thought there might be an opportunity to build something for this ICP, because it's, to be honest, much more exciting because the use cases are much more complex. It's much harder to enter this category. And more importantly, it's huge. B2B commerce alone is like more than 10 times larger than B2C retail, right? Online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. IoT commerce is more than 10 times larger than B2B marketplaces. Again, so the, 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 the potential is, is huge, right? And if you, for example, look at, at the moment, we are transacting roughly 15 billion of GMV over our platform for our customers. This is less than 5% of the total revenues of our customer base. So even our existing customers, 50 billion is a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Are still, yeah. Are still sitting on 95%, not yet digitally enabled revenues, which they ultimately will have, majority of them, 30 to 50% in the next five to seven years, they will have to shift, right? And we want to be the sophisticated engine, the, the operating system for these enterprise clients to enable this type of sophisticated transactional business models. That's awesome. There's a little bit of demand, a little bit of hypothesis. It allows you to see this coming. So one of the things that you, because you cited some examples, right? Traditionally, and, and just kind of for anyone listening who's not familiar with this marketplace, I'm going to try to catch us up a little bit. Traditionally in B2C commerce, the providers like the Shopify's, the Salesforce, the Magento's, like Boris has, has listed, they're like whole platforms. Like the whole, pl everything's in their platform. So you have to move all your SKUs into it. You got to move all the, you know, the marketing, the front la front end layer. It's inside this platform. You can customize it, of course. Your back end is usually plugged in via APIs, but it is all in this platform. It sounds like you guys have developed something a little bit different because uh, you call this composable modularized, which sounds like, like you said before, like you had experience building carts. It sounds like you guys decided to take, hey, instead of this platform, in the B2B world, you just don't know who's got what. And they're not going to move. They're, it's not like B2C. You can't just shift everything to one platform and say, we're going to sell through this. Right. Like you said, less than 5% of their, I mean, 5% was a goal. Like, like you said, for these yeah. companies, 5% was a goal. It wasn't even what they were doing. <laughs> you know, 95% plus is off their existing business model, existing infrastructure, existing technology. There's no possible way they're going to change what they currently have. You're an experiment. This is where I want you to explain. How did you, how did you start saying like, all right, we're going to basically 
I don't know, it's unbundle the word. Unbundle is my word. We're going to unbundle yeah. a traditional commerce platform so that basically no matter what you got, we have something that kind of fits in what you have. Yeah, so this unbundle, it's what you call unbundle, you know, this is what, what is called composable commerce, right, uh, nowadays. So, And the idea behind, behind composability is, is simple, right? So you, you um, the, the, as you described, these, the, the times of these large, you know, monolithic uh, was the, the, the term uh, applications is over, right? So people used to buy one application from one vendor, you know, a best of seed uh, kind of approach, everything in, you know, uh, you have only one contract, one SLA, everything is good. Now, what started to happen is that, you know, over time, many uh, capabilities and features that used to be a built-in feature in, in a monolithic stack, they became very sophisticated itself. i give you a couple of examples. For example, search, right? Of course, every commerce engine of the you know uh, yeah. the first and second generation came with a search feature, right? And Spryka also comes with a search feature. However, search is a discipline for itself, right? By now, that's right. There's a tons of AI and machine learning experts. There's tons of third-party services companies doing search only in the best possible way, either in a generic way or even speci- uh, specialized on certain industries and, and on certain verticals, gathering data, building their machine learning algorithm so that you can send them your search requests and they give you converged optimized results. Recommendation engines, like the typical customers who bought this, you know, buy that, right? Yep. Uh, like certain features, like gifts, promotions, return features, everything which used to be, or majority of things that used to be built in features in a monolithic stack have become, you know, independent third-party services. And and this is good this way because now you know there is people are specialized so people are rather going deep and not broad. Now the question and this was something that we started to see you know very very early on, but basically at the inception of the platform that you know if you want to um, create you know the best possible if you want to enable the best possible business outcome and this is very very important because it's different from the old pitch of the old you know platform game. The old pitches were very much about creating technical lock in, you know. If you are using my gigantic platform, then you are technically locked in. It's very expensive for you to move off the stack. Yeah. Very expensive. Replatforming is a nightmare scenario for everybody. When nightmare. they hear replatform, everyone's eyes glaze over like, oh. <laughs> exactly. 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 But this also meant that people were, uh, and, and, and we encountered this in our early days, people were so much frustrated, right? So we spoke to customers who were sitting like for two, three years on a legacy stack not because they're happy, not because the stack has, del- has delivered the business outcome they expected, not because you know the product made so much fun to use, but just because it was painful to migrate off. And imagine, I mean, what what damage this this you know caused and still causes to business. So our assumption was different, right? Let's instead of locking the customer in with you know a technical lock in, let's build a product that makes sense for people you know to stay on. Let's build an ecosystem which enables people to come together and gives the customer the choice. This doesn't mean that we can't provide certain capabilities. In fact, we do, as I said, we do provide our own search. We do provide our own product information management and content management capabilities out of the box. But if the customers you know, want to rather use a different capability, they don't have to change the entire stack. They can just ch- change one Lego brick and they keep the rest, right? Because this one Lego brick you know, used by or, or, or consumed by or from another company from from another service makes total sense for the business you know in whatever way because it's you know ha- having more features because it's specialized because it's you know maybe the price point makes more sense and and 
you know, this is what composability is about, like on the like from a technical point of view. From a business point of view, you want to enable business agility because what also happens is very often uh, when people use monolithic applications, they are not using the entire stack. Mm-hmm. Like there are different statistics and different numbers, right? Uh, so, so I, I don't, I don't think there was ever like a you know a worldwide research, but the numbers that I have seen is it's typically it's even less than fifty percent of this you know monolithic application that you would actively be using on a daily basis, which still means you are paying directly and indirectly for the entire stack. You are paying through license costs directly. Sure, you are paying through support and operations costs indirectly because we all know. The bigger the technology stack, the more code you have, the harder and longer it takes to fix bugs, deployment, application, you need more infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a lot of downsides, but you have no business values, right? And this is kind of another trend, which is underneath saying, hey, the stack needs to be always as lean and clean as possible. Ideally, it's stripped down to the exact use case that you have. And because otherwise you can't go, if you remember what I said about business agility, you can't go for a let's roll out an MVP in 100 days if you always need everything, right? Maybe your use case is very narrow, narrow to a channel, narrow to a cohort of users, narrow to a front end, narrow to even like a certain use case within a channel. You might need like, you know, Spryker provides 50, 60 capabilities out of the box. You might need for your first MVP, you might need maybe only three or four. And you can do so. You can, it's a very lightweight, rapidly deployed, easy to customize or to configure piece of code and then you can grow from that. If this use case makes sense, you double down, you add capabilities from us, you add capabilities from others. So in order to keep you know, the code base clean and lean, in order to enable business agility, in order to enable rapid time to value, you need best of breed approaches so that you can you know, decide for the best combination of partners and not only once at the beginning of the deployment, but also throughout lifetime. You have five years on this stack. You know, maybe in two years from now, your product department grows and gets more sophisticated and has more requirements that our out-of-the-box capabilities can't fulfill. Maybe there's a new search which came up. Maybe there's a better payment provider you want to uh, you want to switch to. So you as a business, you need this freedom to decide what makes total sense. And this is, you know, what, what we basically saw and kind of baked into the DNA and the architecture of the platform. So from the timeline on the website, it looks like 2014 is when you turn the lights on at Spryker. Is that right? Yeah, end of 2014. So we founded the business and it took us some time to build the product, but end of 2014, we founded the business. Yeah. So give us an idea. So um, I'm assuming in the very beginning, were your hands on the keyboard? Were you helping develop the product along with your team? Uh, no, I was I was not uh, coding myself, no. That's okay. The, the reason why I want to ask is I want to say like, how did you solve the first? So one of the hardest things is, you know, and this is what confounds a lot of technical co-founders, or even non-technical co-founders, but people who want to start businesses in general is like, they, they, I think they agree that they want to go lean MVP. The challenge is what do you build first, right? <laughs> what should you build first? And when you're solving a problem as big as what you're describing, there's a lot of options, right? You can build a lot of different things yeah. for yourselves. Like when you first started, were you more like a, um, I mean, I'm trying to guesstimate what it was, so I'd love for you to describe this. It feels almost like you might have acted and behaved a little bit like a systems integrator at first, because you know you mentioned earlier a lot of B2B systems back back then were probably custom builds, like they probably got an outside vendor or their own internal dev team, most likely an outside vendor, to build them some type of interface to have this thing you know started. Mm-hmm. Were you like us SI in the very beginning to see like listening to customers, be like, okay, they want this component because you, you didn't build. I don't think you built the whole platform right out the gate. 
Give us an idea of how you made the decisions of what to build first. Yeah, good question. So, so we were not like an SI, but we were very close to our customers still, right? So I don't think it's a controversy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, so, so uh, the, the initial value proposition was uh, very technical, right? So it was rather, it was not that business feature oriented because what we heard about from, you know, our own experience having worked with all the other techs is that every time one of this, uh, one of these non-retail customers tried to use, you know, uh, this rather B2C-ish platforms back then, changing them and changing the architecture, which was never designed to do so, like decomposing the modules, you know, extending it, you know, adding use case that, that you know, people saw on the B2B side. This was very, very, very expensive, very hard to do because it just was not part of neither the tools provided nor the architecture. So the initial value proposition what we built kind of in the very beginning was very, very, you know, tech oriented. So we built kind of a framework which, you know, provided this base architecture, which we still have today, which was, you know, composable, which was headless with a decoupled front and back end, which had APIs, you know. Uh, so we did not go deep on every single capability, like adding features, features, features. But, you know, we made sure that the architecture makes sense, right? Okay. And then we tried, and then we, and then we started to validate it with the first, with the first pilot customers, you know, going, going to them and, 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 you know, putting this, you know, in their hands saying, look, you know, if you would, please let us, we heard or we knew you guys have an RFP going on or you have any type of platform selection, right? We know that, you know, by any means we would not fulfill your requirements yet because, you know, not all certification there because no references. Sure. But we are an experienced team, you know, of uh, technology and e-commerce veterans and people who understand the domain well. And we guess we know what your problem is. So have a look at this, right? Just kind of outside of the competition, have a look at this, right? And people did, right? And they were like, oh, amazing. You know, this is exactly what we need, right? So, and then people gave us the chance and gave us the, the benefit of the doubt, uh, betting on this, right? Uh, uh, becoming pilot customers. And then, of course, in the, you need to listen to your initial partners. You need to listen to your initial clients. And this is what I think we did to, to kind of help us shape the roadmap and understand, you know, do we want to go broad? Do we want to go deep? Which capabilities first? Which capabilities second? Ultimately, if you look at how the roadmap is shaped today, it's a much more, you know, let's use the word again, sophisticated process. Sure. Uh, but in the beginning, it was staying just staying very close to our to our customers and partners. And then, what was the first sign of success? Because uh, I, I just to give you a quick update, my my background was I had an inter enterprise software company before, and I remember building. It was for social media marketing. And I thought I understood social media. And then like some of the big brands, like what they were asking for, I was like, I don't, I would never have guessed that. And so <laughs> we have to keep building, but it took a while. And when we had our first like feature that hit or first, I guess, you know, feature set, I guess it wasn't a single feature. It's like the combination of these things, it worked for them. What was that like? Would give us the idea when you were like, okay, we are on the path. Yeah. I give you a funny, a, a funny story here. So uh, ironically, I, I would not, so in this bucket, I would not necessarily put like features, right? But something something completely different, right? Yeah. So as you, as you said, as a as a founder, as an entrepreneur, hopefully, at some point in your in your uh, kind of uh, company development, you come to this aha moment, right? <laughs> when you wake up and like, ah, yeah. no, no, So for us, this aha moment was rather kind of market traction related, and I'll explain why. In the first. 12 to 18 months while we were building the product and having our first pilot customer, my co-founder and I, basically everything we discussed in the first part of the show, right? Uh, this, how we see the market changing, how we saw 
digital transformation, how we saw um, new digital products coming, how we saw the buyer changing, why new methodology is important. What is it that these B2B companies can learn from the Amazons of this world, right? How they need to rethink their, their org structure, right? Uh, which roles they need, why they can't outsource everything anymore, right? All these kind of observations, why companies outside of retail should build digital cameras, right? So we spoke to manufacturing companies like that. They were like, hey, we are selling tools. What are you What are you talking about, right? You, you, we don't have spare parts. Our dealers are selling the spare parts. We are, no, no, there is much more than just selling the spare parts. So we went literally on every podcast, on every stage, into every trade show and conference we could, and obviously in hundreds of customer meetings, not pitching the product, but explaining them the problem, how the market is changing in their favor, by the way, right? B2B and digital commerce for B2B marketplace, IoT will become much, much more important and why they need to do it now. And the first 12 to 18 months, this was the most frustrating experience ever. Because it was a little bit like universal truth. You know what I mean? It's like when you say to people, you know, we need to protect the environment. You know, uh, we need to, lo- need to love our children. Everyone's, yeah, yeah, sign up for this, right? Yeah. But like, so the pitches, they went like this. People were listening to this. They were saying, hey, look what you can f- learn from Amazon. Yeah, of course. Look how you need to transform. This is why the budget needs to move to the CMO, CSO, not the CIO. Yeah, of course. Agility. Yeah. Do you want to launch in 100 days and not two years? Yes, of course we want. So everyone signed up for these things, but they did not understand. And at the end of the meeting, it always ended the same. Yeah, guys, we love what you said, but show us the demo. We're like, guys, <laughs> it's not about the demo. It's not about the features, right? You didn't listen. <laughs> it's much more fundamental, right? It's not a magic stick. Even if we give you this product, if you don't transform, if you don't approach this holistically, you will fail, right? Yeah, it's a capability. It's more like a capability and a methodology. You have to subscribe to it first before anything works. Exactly, exactly, exactly. This was very frustrating, and then, and so we went, you know, every second, basically every meeting, and then, and then, and, and we got rejected by many companies who said, yeah, yeah, we understand fundamentally, you guys are right, but you know, we need something with, you know, this and that feature. So, and then twelve to eighteen months, and I, I, I can, I, I still remember this day, like. I think it was like 18 months or so after after we, we we launched out of a sudden more or less out of a sudden like more or less overnight the market changed the market flipped this is actually the risk and the chance of a market education driven go to market approach right if you're creating a market if you are doing the market the heavy lifting evangelism the market education stuff two things can happen to you like as an entrepreneur one is, right, at some point the market flips like to, to, to what you said, then you will be the one, the, the thought leader, the one who always said it will be like this, right? Everyone will want to talk to you. The second thing that can happen is the market doesn't flip or flips way too late, right? Then you're out of business, okay? Yeah. Which happens to the majority of people. In our case, luckily, you know, the market flipped like and, and started like people who rejected us like six months ago, five months ago, were calling us and saying, you are the guys, you know, we had this meeting nine months ago, six months ago. You told me I need to do this. I just went for a better tool with more features and I failed. It's still not live. The partner still tells me it's 18 months. It's already 2 million spent. Wow. Uh, you know, every update costs me 600,000 euros. Uh, my business, my, my board gives me hell, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so we need to talk again. Can you come in and, and, and now we listen to you and, and now we are ready and we are open-minded to do, not just to buy software from you, but to do the transformation as we should. And this changed like basically overnight. And out of a sudden, we were, we were the thought leaders. So, you know, have always seen the market like this, right? And people, and I think this was kind of the change. And then everything became much easier. Partners were easier to acquire. 
customers were easier to analyst started paying more attention, et cetera, et cetera. So this was the 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 the, the aha moment for us after after eighteen months of of self suffering and well, that's I mean <laughs> in the law in the grand scheme, eighteen months that's very good timing. You know what I mean? Because we. You kind of disclosed how you discovered this problem. You know, customers were already kind of talking about it. You kind of had a hypothesis. We should probably just match this up. Turns out, you know, it took a little, about 18 months for the story to resonate. <laughs> but the timing was pretty, pretty darn good. Um, you know, and so this is one of those things where it's like when you hear it now, I think it's clearly obvious that this is the way the market's going. But probably I agree with you. Well, back then, people were like, oh, sounds good. But, uh, you know, give me an all in one platform. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Then they're like, give me an all in one platform. We keep seeing all these other uh, consumer companies doing all in one. Why can't I have an all in one? And the market eventually catch, caught up. You know, I want to shout out your company a little bit because when it was first put across our desk, we, you know, a lot of technology companies want to be on IT Visionaries. We always want to learn a little bit about it. And, before we say yes or no, but what was fascinating to us is, okay, you're already being recognized by Gartner uh, Magic Quadrant for digital commerce. You're already recognized uh, for marketplace operation applications. You guys have raised a, big, a good deal of money now, and it looks like you haven't raised since uh, 2020. So I think you guys are probably doing great financially. Um, yeah. Give us an idea. Where is the company today? Because on the website, the logos that you guys carry now, uh, you know, major companies like like Rico, like Aldi, like Toyota, like Siemens, they're on your, this, these, these are huge companies, obviously. Mm -hmm. And when we think of Toyota, we usually think of it, you know, like I said, like a Toyota, most people think Toyota is like dealerships, like who's selling B2B, you know, like a lot of these companies, they don't really understand like how these transactions are flowing, but you're carrying huge companies. Give us an idea where the company is today and what you guys are up to. Yeah. So, I mean, we are uh, 600, uh, 600 plus 150 people uh, in 45 countries. So we are remote first uh, company. You know, we have uh, obviously EMEA, Central and North America being our core markets. Uh, but we, you know, rapidly do expand in APEC, for example, as well, which was not planned sure. for this year, but we pull it forward. There is a lot of, you know, interesting uh, uh, demand uh, coming from, you know, we are very disciplined when it comes to our ideal customer profile, as I said, right? So it needs to be you know, it needs it needs to be within the sophisticated bucket, right? It needs to be, you know, companies typically with, you know, a billion and above in revenues, you know, in the you know, manufacturing services. Uh in, in retail we only like food and groceries a lot, right? This is uh, because it's also a huge, a huge market, you know, automotive, life science, medtech, you know, um basically around the world. As I said, we do process roughly fifteen billion in G V. Uh, more or less equally, like a certain the U.S., a certain uh, EMEA, a certain you know in Latin and in uh, and in APEC, and yeah, I mean we we are very proud you know to be recognized by the analysts, uh, obviously you know for for everything we do. We are even more proud to be recognized by our customers and partners because, as you might know, there are also um, uh, customer review platforms which increasingly play an important, even maybe more important role because this is not just an opinion of you know a group of analysts which you know right. i don't want to diminish i don't want to diminish this uh, <laughs> but but you know uh, if you have like tens or hundreds of customers who are actively using the product uh you know telling and sharing their experience like all of us would do on airbnb or or sure. you know, booking.com you know this is definitely of value uh, we would rate you know very high there so you know um which which and this is by the way an important uh, anecdote here as well you know this is my third b2b company right and what I always, what I always liked and disliked about this space is that, and, and I always say at some point in my life, I need to do something more, more B2B-ish. 
Because the good thing in B2C, and I have many, uh, uh, more B2C, and I have many friends who have B2C startups and build some apps or whatever. The good thing in B2C is that the buy of the product is always the user of the product. Yeah. Right? And, and you would vote with the most honest thing that you have, which is your wallet, you know, for this app or for this phone, right? Or for this whatever, right? AirPods. Uh, and you decide because you decide you're deciding basically for yourself, right? That's right. In B two B, the buy of the product is never the use of the product. So you would you would spend like months, like five, six, seven months within like a deal life cycle, talking to tons of people, like procurement, le- legal, like commercial, finance, right, on the customer yeah. side, and yeah. none of and, them will ever see. And then the CFO, the CFO comes in out of the left field, like that's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> the CFO, the CEO, the owner is like, you know, you name it. You will, sp- you will sometimes have like as many as 30, 40 different individuals, you know, uh, being part of such a complex uh, buying buying process. Sure. And guess what? None of them will ever use the product or many right. of them will never even see the product, <laughs> right? So you deal with people buying a product uh, to be used by someone else. And this is why these reviews are so important because these reviews are then actually from the users, right? And this is very easy in B2B, and, and especially for enterprise products, you know, for the procurement people to select something, to put into the hands of the developers, into the hands of the marketeers, the content managers, which will they hate, right? Which, because the tool will be the cheapest yep. or, you know, the most compliant one with the RFP, but not the most usable one, not the coolest yep. one, not the easiest to develop with one, right? Which is, <laughs> which is very important. So... Yeah, uh, I think that that uh, this is why reviews, you know, uh, on top of the analysts matter a lot to us. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, Boris, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries and sharing what Spriker is up to. You know, one of the things like we always say, and we say this to every CEO, by the way. So you're not you're the same. Is like <laughs> when you read a website, a lot of times the you know your marketing team has included some of the buzzwords that the you know your market's <laughs> looking for but it's not clear to everyone else like what are you what are you guys talking about so it was fun sitting down and hearing the problem set the solution set understanding that composable commerce basically is what you consider and this is how I would describe it now if I were to describe it to anybody I'd say think of a b2c commerce platform it's all in one but what Spryker's done is they've broken it apart and that you can then integrate the component parts you need best for your business at an enterprise grade ultra complex problems. They have an ultra simple solution that you can build on top of, uh, depending on what it is specifically, like you said, in the value chain that you need, whether it's just merchandising, whether it's just search, whether it's uh, order fulfillment, pick pack. I, I remember one of our clients, we actually had a client recently. Uh, this was a different, This we pitched uh, a podcast to, but they were explaining how they were a manufacturer of barbells. They would manufacture metal, metal and barbells. And they were trying to go B2C for the first time or B2B, B2C, like let people order the barbells directly from them. And they were talking about how hard it was. Right. They couldn't figure out how to get just the pack slips into the people's hands of what it was. So every business, ultra complex, Spriker integrates with it all. Boris, I want to say thank you for joining us on the show. But before you go, we want to learn a little bit more about you. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform, digital transformation of every experience. Boris, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. Yes. All right. Sometimes we mix some of the questions uh, a little bit at work. So we'll start from this one. This is a fun one. Okay. Spryker's got a unique animal mascot. What animal is it? This is an Oryx antelope. Uh, which is the only antelope which is not only fast and agile and flexible, but can also battle a lion uh, because it has these straight horns and is very powerful and strong. 
the usual, the normal antelopes, the so-called kudos ones that you see in Africa, they eventually get eaten by lions. There you go. All right. So who picked this as the mascot? Did you pick this as a mascot or how did you find out about this animal? You want the you want the marketing story or you want the truth? Story? I want to know from you. How did you guys pick this out? How did you guys pick out this org? Because I mean, in my defense, I believe that most people do not know what an oryx is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, look. So I think I think the the you know we we when, while we were searching for a company name, we just need a placeholder and we just called it you know Project Oryx. I think that was just kind of randomly selected, right? Because we like this. So this was kind of the placeholder before we had a actual company name we were searching for this uh, company name and uh you know now there are tons of stories that our pr team can tell you about why it's called spryker but the truth of the matter is that we just needed something which we could secure all the domains for and which would be globally <laughs> globally available <laughs> so, so and, and then once we flipped to spryker then you know we kind of fell in love with this oryx and apparently some early people on our team did some research and you know found out that you know, Oryx, you know, I mean, they're fast, you know, they're flexible, which was kind of cool analogy to be, to challenge the incumbents in our industry, the, the slow, expensive, old monolithic platforms. So we thought like Oryx is uh, actually pretty cool. So we, so we kept on using it. No, I think it's cool. I mean, the way when it does make for a good story, but it is, as now we all know, it is purely coincidental. Had they called their project, Project Flamingo, that might've been their mascot. I don't know. Maybe they would have changed it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, were you born and raised in Germany? Uh, I was born in Russia. Uh, I came to Germany when I, was, when I was four. And so one of the things that we have that America, most of our audience is North America. Mm-hmm. We, For those of us who have done business with Germans, we think of Germans as very proper people. <laughs> However, I've gone surfing with Germans and they are some wild animals. Um, how would you describe yourself? Are you away from work? Are you, do you how do you like to cut loose? Uh, so I, I'm a, actually, I'm a water person. So everything which is, water-related, surfing, surfing, wakeboarding, kite surfing, I like uh, for the simple reason that you just can't have a phone in your hand. It's just not possible. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, you can, you can play. I've seen people playing soccer with the phone and still, you know, being on calls or doing some slack, right? I've seen people uh, standing on inline skates and skateboards, uh, sitting in a stadium. You know, if you're kite surfing, you just, <laughs> you just can't do email. You can, you know, you're completely relaxing. And, and focusing on what you're doing. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a what I. Oh, listen, I, I, I can relate to this very well. I saw, I remember once seeing this uh, like product pitch for um, a type of glasses that you could then potentially have your AirPods or it was Bluetooth and you could answer phone calls. And I was like, man, no water person's going <laughs> to want that. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, no, no one's going to exactly. want that. <laughs> exactly. It didn't, it didn't make it. <laughs> Where have you been around the world? It sounds like you m- might be a bit of a traveler. If your water is your hobby, uh, you have a global company. Uh, where are some of your favorite places to go in the world? Uh, so I used to. So before before I started business, I was still in high school. I uh, I used to be on the national team for trampoline, trampoline jumping. That's crazy, right? Which is uh, it's yeah, it's crazy exactly. <laughs> uh, and as you know, part of this team, I I was traveling the world a lot, right? So which was very interesting because my friends in school always thought that it, it was pretty much like nowadays with business travel, when people are like, if you speak to people who are not traveling, that often they're like, oh, you have been to San Diego and San Francisco, and then you flew to Chicago, and then from there you flew. To Madrid and then Paris and home. Wow, amazing! The, the people think like you are going to the Eiffel Tower and then you're going, you know, to see this and that. Reality is, you're flying to an airport. You're taking a cab to a hotel. Yeah, you're in some convention center. In a convention center, right? And it's a corporate hotel, right? Then yeah. you're taking the cab back. 
the cab back to the airport, you know, completely jet lagged to take a red eye flight. Yeah, back yeah. This is what happens. And this was exactly the same back then in school when people saw you know, all my friends were like, oh, you have been to South Africa to this competition. Oh, you flew to Japan. Like, and then it was exactly the same, but no business convention center, but like the gym basically. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, you know, I'm, I'm traveling a lot. Again, I, I like water place. I, I, I'm a, a warm water guy, right? So the water needs to be, so I'm not an ocean guy. Uh, I need warm seawater. You know, this is what I, uh, what I enjoy a lot. Well, listen, I got some recommendations for you throughout Central America and South America. If you're ever interested, um, mm-hmm. if you go surfing a lot, if you're a righty, you should go to El Salvador, Las Flores. It's one of the longest okay. rights. If you're a, if you goofy footer, uh, you got to go to Puerto Sandino in Nicaragua. It is so long and ripping. And of course, Pavones of Costa Rica is super famous. So if you ever get a chance to go out to any of those places, you'll, you'll quite enjoy it. Boris, I want to say thank you again for joining us today on IT Visionaries, man. It was a lot of fun. You are, without a doubt, our first uh, national or global trampoline competitor on the show. I can, <laughs> I can promise you that. That is 100%. You are the first. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for having me, Albert. It was much fun.